Hello listeners. Welcome to Growth NX podcast. My name is Preeti Padmanabhan, marketing executive, investor and board member. Our goal here is to share book reviews, leadership insights to help you with your growth. In this episode, we will review the book How will you measure your life by Clayton M Christensen, James Allworth and Karen Dillon. This review is a tribute to Mr. Christensen, who passed away January of this year. Economist Carl Christensen, the most influential management thinker of his time, Forbes named him as one of the most influential business theorists in the past 50 years. Clayton M Christensen was a professor at Harvard Business School. He wrote 11 books between 97 to 2019. starting with the innovator's dilemma to the prosperity paradox diagnosed with leukemia in 2010 he published five more books between 2011 to 2019 christensen calls how will you measure your life as one of the most worthwhile endeavors in his life and i have the pleasure of inviting madhavi ravanan I've known Madhavi for over 20 years and she's a great friend and she's a great leader in the software industry. Madhavi, welcome. Thank you. Thanks Preeti. Thanks for the opportunity. It's my pleasure to be talking to you as part of this platform. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Our listeners would love to know about you and your career journey. So, I am Madhavi, Madhavi Ravanan. I hail from uh, uh, Tiruchi in uh, Tamil Nadu and I studied uh, engineering. I did it at NIT in Tiruchi and I passed out in the year 1998, <clears throat> just the same batch as you are, uh, uh, Preeti. So, then I started off with uh, Wipro in their uh, telecom solutions unit. So I used to be developing uh, software for different uh, uh, telecommunication products. You know, uh, we started off with private branch exchanges. Then there were optical protocol simulators, mobile platform software. You know, variety of things. Then I went to work for Ericent uh, in 2005. I did uh, so project management for again layer two and layer three software uh, development projects for telecom customers again. and in 2010 i took a change into business development and subsequently into technology practice development this is what was happening until 2015 and in 2016 i joined uh, nokia to set up the testing automation uh, practice this is for the end to end cloud core uh, network solution that uh, uh, nokia's portfolio offers in last year i took a change internally within the company to lead the integration services uh, work scope for nokia's cloud core portfolio again so that is what i am doing right now and i think uh, i am having good amount of fun in what i do at work personally i am married i have uh, uh, two kids and that's what i am uh, preeti it's so inspiring to hear your journey so let's get to our book that we are reviewing today how will you measure your life by clayton m christensen tell us why did you choose to read this book so why i chose to read the book preeti honestly i don't recall hearing about the book until the time professor clayton passed away it was one morning i was reading uh, economic times at home and there was this 
small article on maybe maybe the fourth page or so where one of the presidents from tca tata consultancy services had written a note uh, in gratitude of professor clayton's uh, work and the impact he had created to the uh, leadership team in uh, tcas apparently he was a board member at tcas and person had recalled how clayton had spent time being a coach to a lot of them in at the end of the article he had written about this book you know his book had uh, delivered lot of value to people who had read it right so that's when i uh, i first time uh, came to know that there's a book uh, of this name and it's been received very well by you know a lot of uh, audience so that's how i uh, picked up the book now i would also like to take a step back if others are evaluating whether uh, they should read the book maybe we can talk about why professor clayton wrote the book in the first place so he says uh, he himself had been an alumnus of harvard business school and he says once in 5 years there are uh, alumni meets that uh, happen where all his classmates come back and they meet these are primarily fundraising events right he says in, in the first fifth year alumni meet when his classmates came back since passing out i think he passed out sometime in the late 70s when when his classmates came back to the campus in the first fifth year alumni meet it was like everybody was married they were on they were all on impressive careers some of them had kids and they all looked happy beaming and you know success was showing in their faces then by the second alumni meet which was at the 10th year uh, since uh, passing out while professor was wanting to <clears throat> uh, looking forward to meeting some of his classmates he noticed that a significant number of them had not even showed up people who did come in a portion of them looked unhappy while their professional careers were growing at a great pace they were making a lot of money something was amiss you know some of them had already divorced or some of them were getting Uh, closer to a divorce and some of them had lost touch with their kids and such uh, uh, pains were showing up in in a small chunk of the population that showed up and this situation only worsened further in the next uh, uh, fifth year alumni meet right so this kind of uh, uh, prompted uh, professor clayton to uh, think about what kind of actions and decisions that uh, we take can help us ensure that we will have fulfillment in our careers and we will derive maximum happiness or enduring happiness through our relationships be it through family and friends and how do we lead a life of uh, integrity and you know stay out of jail right yeah. so this is the thought process that had triggered him to come up with the content for the uh, book itself yes and uh, mr christensen he had also mentioned that this how will you measure your life is one of his his best works like most worthwhile yeah. endeavors and it yeah. is quite a challenge that people go through uh, and would love to hear your perspective so when you read about the chapter on how does one find happiness in their career tell us what resonated with you and what were you able to apply 
as you mentioned you know the book itself is organized into three broad areas the first area is how do you find happiness in your career the second area is how do you find happiness in your uh, uh, personal relationships enduring happiness in your personal relationships and the third one is about how do you lead a life of integrity right coming to the first section of course he talks about uh, at least three four uh, uh, theories there the one thing that jumped out and it just struck in my mind is the theory that he references it's hertzberg's motivation theory and again when i was reading the book it was the first time i read about hertzberg and his colleagues work and then i noticed there was actual uh, hbr paper around it i went back to read the paper also you know professor clayton had summarized it in the book though so what he, what hertzberg had done is he had studied employees of about hundreds of organizations across different sectors and he had actually evinced responses from them to figure out what kind of feelings what kind of experiences at work gave them what kind of feelings right and he groups those feelings towards the job into two categories right one category of factors he calls it as the hygiene factors the salary that we are paid the titles we get the kind of workplace policies that we have in place and benefits and so on and supervisory practices these are basically hygiene factors these hygiene factors are not taken care i'm going to be dissatisfied at work that's what this implies now let's take a situation if in my job if these hygiene factors are taken care does it automatically mean i'm going to be motivated at work the answer is no so then what will make me stay motivated at work right so such factors are a separate set and he calls them the motivation factors the kind of factors that fall within that category are you know am i feeling challenged am i learning am i growing is there uh, uh, am i getting rewarded is there a sense of accountability in what i am doing right so those are the factors that contribute to uh, motivation so if hygiene factors are absent we are going to be dissatisfied just by the presence of hygiene factors we are not going to be naturally motivated it will mean we will not be dissatisfied then when the motivation factors are indeed present in our jobs that's when we'll be motivated at work right it was like a eureka moment for me because i was able to look back at my own uh, uh, career journey as well and think of i was able to recall times when perhaps i wasn't uh, uh, paid as much as uh, uh, what anyone else in the industry at the same level could have been earning but i was super motivated because of the nature of work that i was doing right so and there are i was also able to recall times when maybe all of the hygiene factors were taken care but maybe my motivation level wasn't as high because of the nature of work that i i was doing at a certain point in time so since the time i read of uh, uh, this theory i have shared it with all the managers who are working with me i spoken about it in several forums and you know uh, that's a, that's like a eureka moment that's the best part of what i liked about Uh, that section uh, pretty on so if we have to be happy in our careers we have to be looking for uh, uh, jobs or uh, uh, positions that will give us the that will take care of the motivation factors that are listed absolutely wow not only did you read the book now you're helping others by going to forums yeah. and talking about it uh, kudos to you man yeah. yeah thank you pretty yeah
Okay. And I believe that, uh, you know, there's one other piece, uh, you know, which if you recall the deliberate versus emergent strategy, um, yeah. was that something that you found interesting for your career? Yeah. Yes. I think uh, 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 let's uh, maybe I will narrate a, a story that uh, Professor Clayton uh, has referenced. Uh, then we'll go back to how uh, I could relate it to my career, right? So he says uh, he talks of how Honda entered the American market. So initially, uh, Honda's strategy was to you know uh, replicate the kind of bikes that Harley Davidson the high-end bikes that Harley-Davidson and companies like Triumph were uh, making for the American market. So their strategy was, you know, Japanese labor is low cost, so we can make the same kind of bikes at a much lesser cost and, you know, offer with a attractive price point to the American customer base. And that way we can gain a foothold was their uh, strategy. That was their deliberate strategy, what they had thought through and planned and intended to do. So they went on to implement it. What happened was you know honda had been making bikes for maybe uh, the japanese market now when these bikes showed up in the american market one distinct difference was an american biker you know does long distance drives at high speed right when when they took honda bikes on such drives oil started leaking in the japanese market perhaps such drives were not common so the bikes weren't really tested for such conditions so oil started leaking from those bikes now servicing and fixing them the infrastructure didn't exist within uh, uh, us so they had to ship back the bikes to japan and get it fixed and you know the the kind of cost they incurred in shipping them back and forth was kind of eroding their uh, margins so and they were already struggling with selling just a few bikes the bikes themselves look like poor cousin of uh, the other uh, models from harley davidson and triumph while this was happening they had also given their smaller two-wheeler bikes called uh, super cub to their team in the uh, us so this team was a pretty frustrated lot because they their strategy wasn't working locally over weekends they would take these super cubs to on mountainous terrain uh, he refers to uh, uh, southern california so on mountainous mountainous terrain and these are dirt roads they will ride along the twists and turns on the mountainous terrain with these super cubs you know you should see a poster you should look for honda super cub on google to see the kind of two-wheeler they are right and they're having a lot of fun it let them relieve their uh, frustration of uh, being part of a team that's not able to execute on a strategy that they had planned so while they did that a lot of other mountaineers you know looked at these guys having fun and they started asking you know can i get one right i said no no this is for local errands only this is for the honda team and things like that but over a period of time they passed the message back and they started shipping these super cubs then some buyer for sears noticed some guys riding around with super cub and you know they wanted to sell it as part of a, a catalog item so then eventually honda realized that oh there is a market for this kind of vehicle and they started going after it and i think rest is history so this is what is unanticipated opportunity or emergent uh, uh, strategy as the author calls it right you start your business thinking you would go with a certain strategy but as you move along the path you realize that you know some of the things are not working there are some unanticipated opportunities that are coming up and hence you do course correction and then you realize you know you are eventually able to uh, be successful in uh, 
business. Similarly, in careers, you know, when we start off, we may have a vision. The way I relate to it uh, in my journey, Preeti, I think, honestly, when I started my career, I didn't have a vision of uh, where I wanted to go. But the second part of what uh, Professor Clayton says, remaining open to opportunities as they present themselves, I think that is something that I have uh, uh, applied all along. So there had been times when opportunities came my way, like when I was switching from project management into business development, I did consult a lot of seniors and then, you know, I took that path. And the other practical aspects is I feel in every assignment that we pick up, we have to create that wow factor with the colleagues that we are working with. I think that's the only way. Uh, we get to enter into the assignments that we pursue, right? If let's say a leader has a challenge and he knows you had solved a similar problem or you had created positive impact in a different setting, then there is higher possibility that that opportunity will come your way. So those are (laughs) philosophies that I have believed in and I think it's working for me, uh, Preeti. Yes, certainly. Uh, You know, making an impact in what you do, like you said, will certainly help our leaders to see our potential and, you know, being open to that emergent strategy. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic inputs, uh, Madhvi. I think we've talked about section one quite a bit. Let's uh, take a step into section two, which is about uh, like finding happiness in relationships. Uh, Tell us how you found happiness and balance between a career and family, especially with you having such a a strong career. Uh, Tell us how you did it. So it's it's a it's a hard journey, uh, Preeti. I think you will know it equally well as I do, right? Dual career, families is a is a tough thing. It's not easy. That is known. And nuclear families make make the families nuclear, and you you are on your own uh, terrain, right? So you know there had been times, you know, uh, until the time a child arrives into the <laughs> setup, you're probably uh, as good as anyone else is. When I became first-time mother, of course, it was a very difficult phase. I had drawn a lot of energy from, uh, be it my husband and the extended family to uh, sail through that phase. While that was happening at work, you know, I think uh, people talk about your bio clock and career clock running concurrently, right? It's very true. So while I was going through or when when my child was a toddler and there was also a challenging project at work. So how do you deal with such a situation? I think I would say for me, uh, support from my peer network, like there had been times when, you know, we would be making late night uh, software releases. So, you know, my friend would stand in for me and I would be showing up early at work and, you know, I will stand in for her. So that was a simple arrangement that helped me uh, sail through uh, at uh, uh, during that period of time. Then there had also been these meetings that kind of start a little later into the evening and, you know, it, it keeps stretching. So when I would see that it would be time, maybe around 6.30 or so, it would be the time when my son would, you know, uh, keenly watch at the door if I'm showing up, right? You know, the face, his face would start flashing. I wouldn't be, you know, really contributing to the meeting. And if I felt, you know, I could just uh, walk off, I would uh, excuse and I would, I have, I, at least in one, two meetings, I, I have done that, you know, where I couldn't uh, handle it. And 
my manager didn't mistake you know he he knew this is the situation this is reality and didn't it didn't really impact me in my uh, career i would say it's not that i had walked out of critical meetings but you know, uh, at times that i could afford i had to do that i couldn't uh, uh, stay back so that was the initial phase from then on when when i knew children will be back from school and i had to be around at least to do some level of oversight you know i have been fortunate to be on a role that gave me the uh, flexibility i'm talking about a time which is uh, maybe uh, 2006 7 uh, uh, period right in india at least we were not on mainstream remote working model uh, in in that period so i would i had agreed with my boss to be coming back early and then connecting from home for uh, rest of the day and the roles that i was doing at uh, those stages were also accommodative of such needs that i had uh, uh, had otherwise in terms of finding balance i try to plan my day i try to wind up within time and i try to be uh, physically certainly <laughs> present with family mental time is still somewhat of a challenge but i am trying to practice some of those mindfulness practices and things like that to be able to be completely present i know i am not uh, perfect yet i have not been greatly successful in compartmentalizing my life but i hope i am getting there pretty that's what i'll say wow that is so much humility madhvi for all you have achieved uh, you know uh, i think uh, that is great advice in creating a support system that like you yeah, did yeah. both at work and at home yeah. and to be there for your family and your children when they needed it yeah maybe one key message from the book that uh, will help the audience is uh, the author says we are all inherently achievement oriented i think uh, Uh, if we introspect we become naturally achievement oriented so every additional gradient of time that we get it's more natural or it's easier for us to immediately spend that time on our career related aspects right if i do something maybe i'll get that promotion then maybe i may get a better raise i may be able to apply for a significantly better uh, uh, job title and things like that so this is a natural uh, a uh, tendency in uh, us wanting to be achievement oriented and wanting to get that uh, immediate gratification in career you can get near uh, uh, fast gratification right but if you were to spend that extra gradient of time on your relationships you know, let's say you spend that time on your kids you you cannot until let's say 20 years have passed you cannot look up and say oh wow i have raised great kids right so that is more of a long term investment but the author's point is a job can give you perhaps full fulfillment but that enduring happiness can come only from your relationship so we need to be making those investments well ahead of time so for our relationships to be healthy and for us to be deriving enduring happiness from those that was a standing out message from that chapter uh, preeti i would say thank you for sharing that uh, that's certainly valuable um now you mentioned about ethics and integrity and staying out of jail <laughs> <laughs> so tell us more about section 3 that uh, resonated yeah. with you i think uh, ethics and integrity simply put is uh, do the right thing even when no one is watching you right so that's the simple message now what resonated with me or what i liked 
uh, in that chapter was that infamous Nick Leeson case, how he as an individual could bring down a, a bank that was as big as the second largest merchant bank, maybe across the world or so, which was UK headquarters. I went in to understand what really happened in his case. So uh, he was a derivatives trader. He was working for Barings Bank in the UK and he was doing well on his job. He was just 25 years and uh, a company looking at his performance, they, they wanted to send someone to start the operation in Singapore. They chose him, they sent him there. Uh, he was a proven candidate. He was enjoying a subtle soft power among the team, right? So uh, I think within a short uh, tenure, within about six months or so, one of the traders in his team executed a wrong uh, transaction. You know, uh, uh, I think in derivatives trade, customers would call in to give their buy or sell uh, transaction. And apparently it was either a buy or a sell and the trader actually executed in the reverse order. And it was like 10,000 USD of uh, loss because of the transaction. Now this has to be put into an error account, you know, uh, very nicely termed that they, they maintained an account called 5-8 account. He had maintained it without the rest of the company knowing it. So probably when a trader makes an error, it was, it's expected to be a small uh, error and then it would get uh, written off. His responsibility was to notify the management about it, the management in the UK about it, but he kind of decided this is a, this is a small error, I can get over it. So from then on, what he did was he started transacting on this error account while they were not supposed to do so. They were supposed to be operating on clients' accounts for the clients' uh, requests, but he started operating on this error account, trying to conceal that 10,000 USD of loss that had happened sometime in um, uh, 90 or 92. Then. Mm -hmm. Over a three-year period, this concealment continued and the losses accumulated. This went to the extent of about 857,000 pounds of losses. And by then, it was all out in the public and he was convicted, he was arrested and he was fleeing the country, he was arrested in Germany, he had to be in jail for six and a half years. So the lesson from his case is when you know a certain way of working is the right way of working, and you think, I know the rule book, maybe just this time I am in an extenuating situation. Let me take a deviation. There isn't much of a risk involved in doing that. That thinking is what is called as marginal cost thinking. And that we shouldn't get into is, is the author's message. I know in our jobs, probably we are not handling such large sums of money or financial transaction, but every job has its own uh, uh, room for uh, error and wrong behaviors and things like that. So that was, a, uh, I mean, in relevance to the case, that person now, if you look him up, there are uh, YouTube interviews of that person talking about his experience. You know, He did not originally intend to become a convict, right? He did not intend to bring down the bank. He was a successful uh, uh, derivatives trader. He went on to start the operation in Singapore, but he eventually ended up in jail just because of that first initial concealment. If he had rather followed the rule book and informed the management, he could have gotten out of it with much lesser damage, both for himself and for the bank. So that's the uh, striking uh, case that I read in the last section, Preeti. Yes, certainly. I think the marginal thinking is, is a good point that you bring up here, Madhvi. In our everyday job, we get tested for the ethics and integrity from time to time. 
So thank you so much. This was a phenomenal recording for us. Uh, any last words, any closing thoughts you'd like to leave for our audience? Yeah, one closing thought, maybe uh, we didn't have the opportunity to talk about it. The overall key takeaway, uh, the answer to that question itself, how will you measure your life? Uh, the, uh, the one or two line summary for that question is, we shouldn't be looking for attaining positions of individual prominence. Rather, we should be measuring ourselves by the number of individual lives we help improve through our actions and decisions that we make day to day. Preeti, that's one uh, uh, key takeaway for me. In a, quote, in a humorous way, Professor Clayton says, you know, God doesn't hire accountants. So what he means is when you uh, meet God, when you have your interview with God in heaven, which is probably the final performance appraisal that we'll go through, God is not going to look at you in terms of how many people you presided over at work, how much of money you must uh, uh, in your life, etc. He's rather going to look at you as how many people's lives you positively impacted through you know, being here. So that was a very interesting uh, uh, message or uh, takeaway. I think that's one summary takeaway for us in that book, uh, Preeti. Fantastic, uh, Madhvi. Really appreciate you taking time. Our listeners are going to really enjoy your uh, episode here. Thank you so much for being with yeah. us. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Preeti. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you.